Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay Carnell, producer of the podcast. Today, we bring you a different kind of episode. Some months ago, Christiana traveled to Antarctica with a little microphone, and so this week, we play for you her field recordings and interviews as she takes us on a sonic journey to the southern continent. Thanks for being here. Okay, so this week, we're diverting from the normal format in a really fun way. In January, Christiana went on an expedition to the southernmost continent on our planet, Antarctica. But this was not an ordinary expedition. This was the third Antarctic expedition with Homeward Bound, a global leadership initiative for women in STEM. And STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Mathematics, and Medicine. And so before we embark on Christiana's sonic journey that she recorded for us, I want to give you a little more context on what Homeward Bound is, but rather than me explain what it is, I'm going to play for you a short interview that Christiana did with Fabian Datner, who is the founder of the Homeward Bound Project. She and Christiana shared a cabin on the ship that they were on called the Ushuaia, and so this was recorded one evening when they were together. Okay, let's listen in. Fabian, what is Homeward Bound? (laughs) Homeward Bound is a global initiative for elevating the leadership of women with a STEM background, science, technology, engineering, maths, medicine. Where did the idea come from? Yeah, there's a lovely story about where the idea came from. Well, you know, people don't believe me. They think I'm making it up. This is hand on heart, sitting here in our PJs. Uh, in, <laughs> indeed, our, in our cabin, the, the, the absolute truth. I had a dream um, and I think the dream itself was the culmination. You and Martin Luther King. Yeah, it's scary, isn't it? I, <laughs> I just, I, I think he, he's, you know, I'm copying him. Um, but that's the reality. It, that's what happened. Uh, and I think it was a culmination of um, increasing concern about the narrative of leadership in our world, not leaders, not individual people, but the narrative of leadership not actually keeping pace with the world in which leadership needs to be, and that's not uh, intended as a division between us around the narrative of leadership, but rather to say the leadership that got us to where we are today may not in its entirety get us to where we need to be into our future. So what was your dream? So the dream was I was on a ship. Mm -hmm. You're bushy. Well, I want to know what the dream is. I'm getting there, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. So I was on a, I was in a ship in Antarctica and at that stage I'd never been. In the dream you were in a ship. Because right now we're sitting in in a ship ship in Antarctica. So I dreamt of this ship. I just, and you were in the dream as well. So um, I saw a room and the room is almost identical to the back of the Ushuaia, the ship we're in. And there were 45 women there, not the 80 that we now have. And I knew exactly what we were delivering. I saw the banner of Homeward Bound to my left. I saw a film crew to my right over my right shoulder and I knew that we were helping these women take a more significant place in the narrative of leadership in the world. I knew we were delivering um, leadership, strategy and science as it informs what's happening to the planet. Um, And all of that has become true. But I will say for the eager listeners that when I first wrote this down the day after the dream and I listed the people who I hoped we could get to as collaborators and filmed faculty, Silvio, Jane Goodall, Christiana Figueres, and here I am snuck up. And here we are. Next to you on Where's bed. Jane and where's Sylvia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They need to get into yeah. their pyjamas and join us. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? So you're into your third expedition? 
Yes, it's just coming to a conclusion. Coming to a conclusion. <clears throat> and um, so where are you with respect to your vision? Well, of course, it's it's a thousand times larger and more impactful than I originally dreamt. I think if I'd imagined that it would become what it has become three three years ago, I would have chickened out. Um, I haven't operated on a global platform before. I haven't, uh, whilst I've led business uh, businesses, I've not operated at this order of collaboration and we are watching uh, a change occur, according to the media people, something like 900 million people heard about Homeward Bound between October last year and June this year. It has gathered huge momentum amongst the scientific community and I think it kind of hit the quadrilla. It, it's about the narrative of women uh, it's the visibility of these women leading. It's about the narrative of science. It's about the crisis in the context of leadership and it's about the state of the planet. And what are the next steps and how will you know or feel that, that your vision and your dream has actually been reached or achieved? It's become the project for a lot of people and I'm at pains to say perpetually, you own this. The participants own the project Um I don't. In the way it operates, it's presenting a different model of uh, distributed, emergent, collaborative leadership. The next big step, which I'm just in the process of deciding on, is now to have a sistership. Mother Nature needs her design and communication daughters and coming in to support the scientists, uh, a big community of people who specialise in all forms of public communication. When you say a sistership, you mean a sistership. You don't mean sistership like we say kinship. Correct. You say a sistership, Sister. yet another ship. Yes. That would take a hundred from a different industry. Correct. All from the communications industry: marketing, advertising, digital media, visual, uh, film, audio, blogging, and we would now take those people and give them 10 months of exposure to science as it informs what's happening to the planet. They would be selected on the basis of their commitment to supporting the visibility of the women. So by the time this happens, we would be at the 500 mark for the targeted 1,000 that we're aiming for of women with a STEM background. And we want them to be in a position where they never have to do dinky presentations again. They never have to take a, a crucially important message out to the world and compete with Kim Kardashian's bottom, that the <laughs> visibility of their message goes out to ordinary people. Mm. Well, Fabian, very exciting initiative, very exciting. And also, thank you very much for inviting me on to the third expedition. What we're an honour to have you. We're coming here to a close on the expedition, sadly, yes. in a few days. I wish it would go on for yet another month. But we all have to get back. Don't to, worry, I'm going to ask you for no, November. <laughs> Fabian, thank you very much. Thank and you. And we will An um, honor. continue to be in touch about Homeward Bound. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, it's Clay again. Fabian mentioned that the next Homeward Bound trip is leaving in November. And yes, she was talking about this month. The next trip, HB4, leaves in just two weeks on November 22nd. If you want to follow along or learn more about the Homeward Bound Project, which I recommend you do, you can visit homewardboundprojects.com.au. Okay, so we just heard from Fabian Datner about the vision and purpose of what Homeward Bound is, and we're ready to set sail. Get it? Set sail? Okay. Christiana recorded this in Antarctica in January 2019 as a podcast episode with Tom and Paul listening back in the studio 
I should note, we have some immersive nature sounds coming your way that are best heard through stereo headphones or a nice set of speakers so you can really feel like you're there. I've got my headphones. I'm going to put them on actually right now. And I recommend you grab yours too. Okay, let's do it. Here's Christiana. Well, Tom and Paul, I'm a little bit sorry to tell you that I've just come back from a 20-day expedition to Antarctica. Of course, I would have taken you both with me had I been able to, but this was an expedition only for women, and I will explain why. You can imagine that I took hundreds, if not thousands, of photos and videos. I haven't classified them yet. But you know, sharing photos is a little bit difficult on our podcast. And so I thought that as an alternative, I would share with you and with everyone else the sounds of Antarctica. So I am going to give you a little tour of Antarctica via the calls of different species of penguins, different species of whales, some sounds that you will very easily recognize, and at the end, a little surprise. I will share with you a very unique sound that few humans would ever recognize. So get ready for a sonic expedition. So I was on board this fantastic HB leadership boat with approximately 80 science women, ranging all the way from women specializing in electrons to microbiology, plant and animal biology, biomedicine, infotechnology, all the way to astrophysics and the galaxy. Now, I was very much looking forward to going to Antarctica um, because one of my very, very favorite experiences in life is total silence. And on previous trips, I had experienced total silence in Antarctica. However, it will not come as a surprise that if you're on a boat with 80 women, you do not necessarily experience silence. It will, however, come perhaps a delightful surprise that there are many wonderful sounds in Antarctica. And to help me illustrate and bring to you some of the many wonderful sounds I found among the distinguished science women on board, Melania Guerra, who luckily is also from Costa Rica, is a bioacoustic oceanographer, and she is going to help me bring all of these wonderful sounds to you. Melania, who are you and what do you do? Well, I am a woman who has been fascinated with the ocean for as long as I remember. And anyone who has stuck their head underwater has noticed that our eyes don't properly work underwater. We cannot see very far. In some cases, not more than a few meters. So animals and organisms that have lived for millennia underwater have discovered this as well and have noticed that ocean sound is a much better way of transmitting information. So they have evolved to utilize sounds and, uh, yeah, these vocalizations that are fascinating. Uh, but there are also other sounds that come from the processes that happen underwater. For example, earthquakes or the rain on the surface of the water and the wind 
So my profession is basically to hear all these sounds and interpret what they mean. So, Melania, what sounds did we actually hear? I think the first very fun sound that I heard was the one of Adelie penguins. Do you th is that the first species that we heard and that we recorded sounds? It was one of our very first landings to go to Paulette Island, and this is a huge colony. But once we landed there and got to see the, the Adelie nests and the little chicks, we also learned from the expert scientists that the population has been declining. And uh, we are trying to understand why this is. Apparently, this species of penguin is very uh, specialist. So they only like a certain particular conditions. And for example, the... And they only eat one species of krill, is that exactly. right? Exactly. So if that species of krill is undergoing changes, then the population of Adelis suffers as well. So they have been noticing that the numbers of Adelis are going down. Now, can we actually listen to some Adelis? Yes, of course. We took, a, we took a recording as we walked around the island, and this is what a colony of Adelis sounds like. Okay, Melania, do you remember how hectic these little Adelie penguins were, like, wobbling back and forth, just so hectic about getting their food, finishing their nest, getting food to their young, just really, really hectic. Whereas when we went to the Gentoo colony, they were a little bit more tranquil, but their noises. <laughs> yes, in Kuruville Island, we visited a, a much smaller population of Gentoos, uh, but they reminded me of other animals. Did you think they sounded like something else? Well, I kind of thought they sounded like donkeys. <laughs> I'm sure they will not like the comparison, but take a listen and see what do you think they sound like. Quite a spectacular call of these Gentoo penguins. But Melania, are these Gentoos also decreasing because of changing temperatures and climate change? Or are they actually being differently affected? This is one of the reasons why science is so incredible that what is happening in one population may not apply to a different species. And in the case of the Gentoos, they are a generalist species. So they are taking advantage of the gap that the Adelis are leaving in the habitat and the ecosystem. And they're taking advantage and actually thriving and doing really well. So their population is going up and we see a lot more so Gentoos. So they like warmer weather. They are enjoying the benefits of <laughs> not having the Adelis around. More food, better climate, better weather. And Do you remember anything else that happened when we were on Cooperville Island? Oh, yes. There was something very spectacular that happened that had nothing to do with animals. We were just looking at these beautiful penguins, and all of a sudden, it was like thunderstorm. And 
was actually a piece of a glacier that just collapsed and fell into the water and it sounded like a huge explosion going on. Melania, and on the same island, on Cooperville Island, didn't we see another furry, wonderful animal? <laughs> yes, it was a treat to not just get to see birds because we saw penguins and also some of the other seabirds that exist in Antarctica. But then we got to witness one of our first mammals, a furry Waddell seal that was just lacing around on the beach. Now, to be honest, we did not record because they were more sleeping than anything else. So we did not record them. But I think, Melania, don't you have in your little sound treasure trove, don't you have the sound of Weddell seals? Can you lend us that for a few seconds? Yes. In the past, I have studied Weddell seals, and they are one of my favorite sounds because they join my passion for oceans with my passion for science uh, fiction and Star Wars and anything to do with <laughs> space because I think these animals are from another planet. Okay, let's take a listen. Hold on, Melania. You're not really telling us that those sounds that sound like Star Wars actually are coming from seals. Are they really coming from seals? <laughs> We are pretty sure those are the vocalizations of Waddell seals. But these are not the ones they make when they are on the surface. They actually make them while they're underwater. And this is fascinating because they are some of the animals that I was talking about before that take advantage of these attributes of the ocean for transmitting sound better than they transmit light. In fact, sound travels four times faster in the ocean than it does in air. So these animals have evolved to have these abilities to utilize this capacity of the ocean to transmit information via sound instead of light. And apparently 100 years ago or 150 years ago, before the ocean was filled with ships, An animal like ships meaning sounds introduced, Exa right? Exactly. So it's the sounds of the ships, of the motors of the ships. Exactly. So the sounds of the ships before they were there, then a whale, a blue whale that was in Japan, could have heard a blue whale that was talking across the Pacific. So the entire Pacific. Wait, wait, wait. Basin, What did you just say? A blue whale. A blue whale in the waters of Japan mm -hmm. could emit a call and be heard all the way across the Pacific by another blue whale. An entire ocean basin. And we know this because we have modeled those sounds. So if there was no noise introduced from the ships, a blue whale had the capacity of hearing a blue whale that was in California. That is just completely incredible. But you know what, Melania? You're actually cheating a little bit because we went very, very quickly from Star Wars Weddell seals to whales. And we haven't really talked about which whales we saw on our trip because we did not see any blue whales. We so didn't. now we have to say which whales did we see and what would they have heard if we had been able to listen to them. So are you ready to go to whales? I am ready to go to whales always. Okay. So Antarctic whales. So Melania, if my memory does not betray me, I seem to think that on day maybe two, we woke up and our boat was not surrounded by single humpback whales, but actually by five pods of humpback whales. Is, do you remember that as well as I do? <laughs> All of the days in Antarctica start to merge into 
into many. I, so I don't exactly remember what day it was, but yes, we have been we had been having many sightings of humpback whales, and it's not um, uncommon. This is the time of the year when those animals are migrating from the tropical latitudes down to the pole and feeding. So many of those animals were looking for their food to fill their bellies. So now, Melania, why are they called humpback whales? Do they have a hump like camels have a hump? <laughs> or is there another reason why they're called humpback whales? This particular species, as you may remember, we saw their tails. Do you remember it? When I do. They- When they went down for a dive, they hump their back especially high, and that's what allows us to see their flukes, which is what their tails are called. Um, So that's where the name comes from. So it's not that they have a hump there. They don't particularly. It's that they actually arch their back quite remarkably in order to go down into a certain depth and as they go down that's when their tail comes up yeah so after taking a few uh breaths of air because they're mammals so they have to inhale uh through the brill hole then they go down for a dive uh and to do that they arch their backs and use their fluke to like propel them downwards and then they're down for seven to 15 minutes before they come up for air again and they hang around here in pods which means in basically little families. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yes. So uh, who are the members of the little families? Well, a few of the groups that we were seeing were um, moms with young um, calves, which is what their babies are called, that were maybe a year old. So they were not uh, too young that they were still uh, feeding or, or um, drinking the milk of the mom. They were being taught how to catch their own prey and the little krill that they are feeding off here in Antarctica. Yeah, we did see quite a few, um, quite a few feeding. Now, did we actually hear them? So here is my recollection. I remember that when they were particularly close to the boat, we could hear their blows, and I tried to record some blows. I'm not exactly sure if I got it, but we can try to see what I recorded first. Um, and then maybe, Melania, you can treat us to some calls that we were not able to hear, obviously, because we're above the water. But just wonderful to hear what they sound like when they call underwater. So first, a few blows to see if we can recognize that. So those are some of the sounds of whales uh, as they are breathing. Melania has just reminded us that they are mammals, so they do need to come up to the surface to breathe. And they do that through their... Blowhole. Blowhole. That's why it's called blows. Okay. So those are the sounds that they make. Um, But Melania is also going to treat us out of her library, admittedly, because we do not have a hydrophone. Is that what it's called? The hydrophone that you can put into the water to record um, underwater sounds. But here is Melania's treat to us on uh, an, an example of humpback whales. Well, Melania, what a treat to listen to those humpback whales. And question, 
Do all humpbacks actually use the same vocalizations? What we know is that different populations have variations on these different types of calls. Uh, and there was uh, an exceptional case in Australia where we actually were able to document one population that lived in eastern Australia and another one that uh, lives in the waters off of western Australia. And one time, the researchers there found out that one of the populations of the east was going with the uh, population from the west. And what One animal, a single animal. A single animal, yes, uh, decided to go visit the other population and... Instead of the animal adapting to the calls of the population, that one individual converted the entire population to his accent. And what we believed happened, or the researchers believe happened, is that this new novel accent sounded so exotic that it was more uh, successful for reproduction and attracting the females. And they all decided to start singing with a new exotic accent. The power of the individual. <laughs> There you go. Lesson for life. Now, Melania, we saw mostly humpbacks, definitely. We saw, honestly, we saw humpbacks almost every single day. We would be in the middle of the program, somebody would scream out, humpbacks, and we would all run outside. And it see, never grew old. <laughs> and it never grew old because they're such fantastic animals. But we also, on occasion, saw others, other types of whales, or are they actually not whales? <laughs> One of the ones that got everybody excited was uh, the orcas. Do you remember that? How excited Indeed. everybody got when we saw those big black fins popping up on the surface. Otherwise um, known as killer whales. Yeah, they also have this unfortunate name of killer whales, which it doesn't mean that they're killing for fun. They are top apex predators of the ocean, and they are really, really effective at doing that. And it also doesn't mean that they're whales. But they're also not whales. They're more related to the, the dolphins. So they are a type of dolphin because they have teeth in their mouth, and that's how they catch their, their food. They go after uh, smaller whales or, or calves of other species. Uh, some of them catch uh, seals or penguins. So they eat other big live animals. Exactly. So what's the difference between the eating habits of the orcas and the humpbacks? Humpbacks are what is called filter feeders. So they have baleen in their mouth, which is uh, made out of keratin. Hold on, hold on. What is baleen? Okay. So baleens are, imagine little curtains hanging from their mouth, from the top of their mouth. And it's made out of keratin, so the same material as our nails. So it's mm -hmm. rigid, relatively mm -hmm. rigid. And it's like having a big toothbrush hanging from your mouth. And with that, when they inhale a big gulp of water, then they can push their tongue towards the, ba the baleen in the back and push out the water and keep only the small little critters that are called krill, which is what they feed on. So two completely different feeding strategies. Strategies. Exactly, yes. So imagine these huge animals like the humpbacks or even blue whales, the biggest animal in the world, is feeding on these little tiny shrimp. So krill. Which are krill, yeah. So Melania, so they orcas feed very differently from humpbacks. Do they actually speak very differently? Do they have different vocalizations and different <laughs> calls? Their calls sound very different than humpbacks, whereas you think of humpbacks as being very musical and harmonic. Orcas have more of a call that has a function that is very different. They do something called echolocation, which is something that, for example, bats also do in air. And what this means is that they are sending this 
uh, beam of sound that bounces off whatever is in front of them. So if it's a fish or a rock or the bottom of the ocean, and it gets translated in their head into an image. So they have this capacity, for example, the way that they do an ultrasound in the belly of a mom. They they are sending actually a beam of sound and then it gets turned into um, an image. And these animals can do it with their environment. So the sounds are much higher frequency or higher pitch. So can we hear that or is it so high that we can't hear it? It is actually within our hearing range. So yes, we can hear it. So can we listen? Yes, here's a recording that we picked up somewhere else, not in Antarctica, but of the same animals. Okay, okay, I just have to interject here. <laughs> Christiana, how did you hear any of this with 90 STEM people on that boat? And STEM people are constantly advancing knowledge by promulgating different theses to each other. Science is indeed the most talkative profession. How could you hear any wildlife at all? Well, guys, you're absolutely right. So what can I say? Hardly surprising to know that 80 women plus 10 faculty, 90 women together on a boat are actually uh, a little bit loud. So while we had to strain our hearing to hear all of the beautiful animals, there is no way that we could have ignored the um, chatter, chatter, chatter of 90 women over dinner, for example. And on top of all of the chatter, chatter of 90 women, of course, we lived for 20 days with the noise of the engine of the boat itself, which constantly accompanied us through our trip, not because we were navigating the whole time, but because some of the engines of the boat need to be on all the time to produce the electricity necessary for the boat to have minimal minimal location capacity, min- minimal freezing and cooling capacity, minimum cooking and um, heating and lighting capacity. So the noise of the boat was a constant companion. Now, Melania, of course, our boat was not the only boat navigating uh, the Antarctic waters. Clearly, there were many other boats well, what does that do? Uh, what we hear overwater is one thing, but what they hear, um, in particular underwater, is another thing. So, what what does this do? All this noise to, in particular, to animals underwater. Well, when we bioacousticians try to think of this, uh, did you, what did you just say? Bioacousticians. Okay, that's a new word on me. What does bioacousticians? <laughs> well, we mean? used it before. Remember when you introduced me as a bioacoustics oceanographer? So, bioacoustician means the same thing. We study acoustics, so sound, in bio, which is in re- re- reference to animals. Well, write that one on your list of new words under the Christmas tree. Okay. Bioacousticians, we have some concerns about the impacts of all these ships that are trans, uh, transiting the oceans uh, today. 
And we equate it to what it would be like to be in a city that has a lot of smog and you cannot see very far. Because for these animals, sound is their primary sense of perceiving their environment. So imagine that you are in a city where you cannot see 80% of the day. And you cannot walk or you keep bumping into things or don't know how to navigate your surroundings. So that's why we have given it this name uh, of acoustic smog. That's what that curtain of noise is doing to these animals. Uh, and when you think that uh, about 90 or 95% of all the traded goods in the world at some point are on a ship traveling to their destination, then we have some part to play in that. We have to be really uh, thoughtful about our uh, consuming habits and try to choose things that are not coming from very far away. So that we don't add extra noise underwater. How has this changed over time? Is there, has it been measured like from decade to decade, how much more pollution, acoustic pollution or acoustic smog is being put into the waters of the oceans? Yes, there, there have been a few long-term studies that have seen that uh, over multiple decades, the noise is actually doubling every 10 years. So the oceans are getting about double as noisy every 10 years, mostly due to shipping uh, transit. And of course, we know it is big ships that produce most of the noise because of their propellers, right? That's where most of the noise comes from. But we also know that there are little zodiacs that provide short distance transportation from the boats to land, um, either to take passengers or to take goods and services from boat to land. Um, so zodiacs, how important are they in terms of noise pollution? Well, where we were in Antarctica, it's zodiacs that transport us from the big mothership down to the coast to do our landings. But for example, in many be beaches around the world, it's jet skis. So they have mm. a similar frequency range and they uh, have a, a similar contribution locally uh, in the shallow water environments of the uh, areas, the coastal areas. So in the case of Antarctica, it was the Zodiacs, but elsewhere it can be other motorboats. And then just following that thought, um, getting closer to land, there's also a lot of noise that is produced by us humans on land. So we had the opportunity to visit uh, three stations, the Great Wall Station of China, the Carlini Station of Argentina, and we wanted to get onto Palmer of the United States, but there was too much ice. In fact, for three days, we did never left the big boat uh, because there was so much ice in all of the landings that we wanted to do. But um, even on those stations where we did visit and were able to disembark, we heard a heck of a lot of noise, mostly from diesel generators that are unavoidably providing electricity for all the services and all the creature comforts that all human beings need in conditions that are as extreme as the Antarctic um, conditions. So here is a quick sample of a diesel generator producing electricity in the Carlini station in Argentina. Now, before we come to the end of this episode, this sound expedition, I thought I would wrap it up by giving you a treat that does not come from Antarctica and that you will not recognize because it comes from a distance even farther than Atlantica, this 
goes beyond planetary boundaries. It goes beyond our solar system boundaries. It goes beyond our uh, galaxy. It actually goes way, way beyond. And to give us this treat of a very, very unique sound, uh, another fantastic woman on board the ship, Leticia, is going to tell us what a gravitational wave is, which I had no idea about before I came on board. So Leticia, what is a gravitational wave? So a gravitational waves, or the theory of gravitational waves, were predicted by Albert Einstein over a hundred years ago. They're distortions of space-time that travel through the universe at the speed of light. Even though Einstein himself said it would not be possible, we have been able to detect gravitational waves here on Earth using kilometer-long detectors. Four kilometers, you told us. Four kilometers long mm -hmm. are the ones in the, um, in the United States. There's also a three-kilometer-long detector in Europe, in, Europe in, okay. uh, in Italy, yes. So we've been able to detect them here on Earth. So what does detect mean? Are we, can we actually... They don't detect sound, those detectors. What do they detect? So um, the detectors are measuring the displacement of space that happens as the wave propagates through, through the Earth. Sorry, but you have to explain that to me in English. Okay. So they use uh, laser beams to measure a certain distance, four kilometers long, in two directions. When a gravitational wave passes through, the distance between the two arms changes in different directions. And the gravitational wave would be produced by what? So uh, the gra gravitational waves are generated by everything with mass. But the ones we detect here on Earth are generated by the most massive objects and the most extreme events in the universe. An example of this is the collision of black holes. So the gravitational wave that was detected recently is produced, was produced by the collision of two black holes that collided against each other when? Okay, so the first gravitational wave we detected was in September in 2015, and it was of two okay. black holes that were 30 times the mass of our sun. They collided together 1.3 billion light years away. So it took light 1 billion years to travel to us from that event. So it took the gravitational waves that long as well. It's a little bit mind-boggling, would you agree, for those of us who cannot think in those uh, at that scale. So you said the first. Have we actually detected another one? Yes. So we've detected all up in the last uh, two years of this um, advanced detector era of gravitational wave observation. We've detected seven black hole collisions and one other collision from two neutron stars. From two neutron stars. Neutron stars, which are? Okay, so a neutron star is a very dense star. We can't actually see it with light. It doesn't burn energy to light, but it uh, contains about the mass of our sun in about 10 kilometer diameter. So you imagine all that mass compacted into a 10 kilometer diameter. I'm beginning to get the feel that we are really quite inconsequential in this world. We're just absolutely tiny. Uh, yeah, on a universal scale, um, the Earth doesn't even register. Doesn't even exist, doesn't basically. Even register, yeah. Doesn't even register, yeah. doesn't even exist. Yeah. All of this existence is just a figment of our imagination. <laughs> yeah, you could basically think of it that way. <laughs> okay, but hold on, Letizia. So we started this because 
you actually on board treated us to listen to a gravitational wave. So how does that happen? Okay, so what we actually listened to was, uh, as the detector, we can say that it vibrates. So the, the arms are moving as the gravitational wave passes through. And they're moving at a certain frequency, which means the number of times in a second that they move back and forth. And if you, the actual frequency of that is within the range of frequencies that we can hear. So if we turn that into a sound, so we just create something that vibrates at that frequency and produces what would be a sound, which is our ears moving mm -hmm. back and forth at that frequency, then we would be hearing what our detector has observed. Okay. So can we actually hear it? We certainly can. Listen up. So what you heard there, there were eight repetitions of the sound all up. So first it was played twice at the actual speed, but in order for us to actually hear it to the full extent, it was slowed down, and so then it was repeated again twice, and then that whole sequence was repeated again. You heard the same sound eight times. So Leticia, at my level of understanding of astrophysics, that actually sounds like the heartbeat of the universe. Is that a completely irresponsible simplification? Um, not entirely, because uh, if you think about it, the, in the context of the universe, there's, these things will be happening all the time. A lot of the times we won't be able to observe them or detect them, but they would be happening on a rate that is often enough to be almost constant. And so it would be kind of like an erratic heartbeat if we were to hear them all the time. Can we hear it once again? Well, um, ladies, thank you so much for being so generous with um, sharing your sounds with us. Thank you very much first to Dr. Letizia Samut. Thank you very much, astrophysicist. Um, and thank you very much to Dr. Melania Guerra, biosonic oceanographer. Well, thank you so much, Christiana, for having me and uh, have an opportunity to remember everything that we heard during those amazing 20 days in Antarctica. It was a great way of reliving it through the sounds of the South. Thank you very much, Christiana. Yay! All right. Wow, that was awesome. I've definitely never heard a gravitational wave before. That was... Yeah, that was cool. To keep up with the next voyage, you can look up at HomewardBound16 on Twitter. And for Instagram and Facebook, you can search at HomewardBoundProjects. I personally have been following their blog, which is filled with amazing science research and stories from the women who are changing the world. And I can't recommend it enough. You should definitely go check it out. The website, once again, HomewardBoundProjects.com.au. So it just remains for me to say that Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism, and it's produced by me, Clay Carnell. But like all great things, it's a team that makes this happen. Thanks to Callum Grieve, Freya Newman, Pete Kluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Charlock-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. And a very special thank you this week to Fabian Datner, Dr. Melania Guerra, 
and Dr. Letizia Samut. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. A solid rating gets the word out about outrage and optimism to more listeners, and we can keep bringing you these types of episodes where we go to Antarctica and stuff. And last but not least, you can email us at podcast at globaloptimism.com. We try to respond to every email, and we really appreciate all of your feedback. So thank you for that. Thanks for listening. Christiana, Tom, and Paul will be back in your feed next week. See you then.